Welcome to the Merlin Podcast, bringing Europe's fresh waters back to life. So we are in the middle of everything. Uh, this is a river system. We are surrounded by uh, cropland. And yet you have here a site with a, a tremendous diversity and, uh, and um, uh, vegetation breathing and uh, animal, uh, animals and everything. And we uh, want to uh, conciliate the existence of this uh, uh, beautiful ecosystem uh, with the, the, the cropland around and the activities of human around. We're standing beside a small tributary stream of the Soraya River in central Portugal. It's early autumn and the sun is beating down on acres of farmed crops across the wide floodplains. But under the cover of the trees surrounding the stream, the air is cooler and birds and insects flit between green vegetation. I'm Rob St. John and I'm speaking to Professor Teresa Ferreira from the University of Lisbon. Teresa is telling me about the challenges she and her colleagues face in restoring the ecological health of streams like this in a landscape dominated by agriculture. How can you balance the needs of the stream and those of the farmers? Well, for once, um, you have to conciliate. They need water, and the river needs them to to uh, to take care of it of of, of him, if you <laughs> allow me. So uh, it means that we have to show them how the river is important for them. They already know that the water is important. Uh, they are less aware of the ecosystem itself, um, and so the filtering effect the sediment retention, the control of the floods, uh, the sheer effects of having angling possibilities or, or just coming to the river and, and having some, some picnic is uh, something that, uh, that we should highlight for them to, uh, to be their goal also, uh, besides uh, re getting money for the crops, of course. The Soroya catchment has been significantly shaped by human hand in recent decades. The need to store and transport water to irrigate crops has created a landscape where the river has been straightened and trapped within concrete channels. Its flows controlled by a complex network of reservoirs, pipelines and drainage channels. But fascinatingly, because these changes have only happened relatively recently, there is living memory of how the Soraya River catchment used to be, as Gonzalo Duarte from the University of Lisbon tells me. What happened when they claimed the lands is that they constrained it, so it, it will not, it's not able to wiggle in the landscape as it would normally, or naturally, so to say. In, um, well, in ancient times, the river would occupy all this area, and so the channel where, it, where the course of the river would, would occur, it would change uh, from year to year or from five well within a period of time that could be a year or more because it would have the space and the the floodings the, the more water or less water would make the changes those would be areas where we might have had uh, uh, an old channel of, of the river a side channel or it could be a little bit more braided but it's now it's uh, it's been claimed from the river so it's a bit constrained in this case what you see here on one side by urban usage and on the other side by the by the uh, agriculture clearly both land and water in the Soraya catchment are highly sought after 
Is it possible to make more space for the rivers and streams and the life they support? Teresa Ferreira invites us to take a bird's eye view of the catchment seen from above to imagine how this landscape could look after restoration. Well, if you look onto a drone flight uh, all along the corridor, you can still see uh, parts where the riparian uh, woods need to be uh, mended and, and managed. So I would like in the future that those, we could not see gaps on the, on the riparian, but would see a well-tended riparian with a nice width. There are a lot of invasions by giant, uh, giant reeds, a lot of invasions. So this is very difficult to control. So I, I would like to see the flight without all, uh, with uh, very few reeds. There are river crossings, um, and they should be, um, it must be a river crossing. There is always a river crossing. They should, they should be um, in such a way built that the species move back and forth along the river with no problem. Uh, and so we are trying to, uh, to develop uh, nature-based solutions for those river crossings. Um, the number of obstacles should be decreased or even disappear. Uh, anything constituting an obstacle should, should disappear. So this restoration work, supported by the Merlin Project, is seeking to increase native vegetation around the stream channels across the Soraya catchment and to remove the barriers to water flows and fish movement within the streams themselves. But this work is constrained by the water needs of other users of the catchment, particularly farmers, as Gonzalo Duarte tells me. Because it's, uh, it's, um, it's driven by farming, so it actually works as a pump, kind of a hydraulic system, a pumping system. You provide water whenever the farmers need and they tend to need more during spring and summer and so that means that you tend to have to pour water into this system at that period period of year and that's a kind of different way that the natural system in southern Portugal would work and then you also have all sorts of activities that that are needed and safeguards for flooding, they tend to control. They made those in streams that we are seeing downstream just to have the fluvial beach associated to the village. So there's the, the, the land use that, that surrounds this river. It actually, well, it creates a lot of problems, but it's the food that's produced. So it's, a, it's kind of a trade-off that we have to be aware of. And we, if we want to do something, if we want to change and to improve or to work towards restoration, we, we really need to convince farmers, convince the, the, the decision makers, the local decision makers, that what we are going to do will provide benefits for both conservation and, and, and environment, but also for them, because they, they, are, they, live, they live off of this. So well, it's part of their... It's also... I know uh, part of their roots, they, most of the people live here, so they also, we also need to be aware of that. But, as Teresa Ferreira explains, water availability in the Soraya catchment is often irregular, and these patterns are being exacerbated by climate change. So we do, in general, especially in Portugal, we do have enough water, uh, good water, enough quantity of water, uh, via the, the rain and via the transport from fluvial uh, fluvial systems. But the water uh, does not uh, occur in a uh, regularly way, not uh, within a year and not between years. Uh, 
So you can have three years without, almost without water and then uh, two or three big floods. And so uh, to have this uh, enormous uh, area of crops and with a good production system, they need to account for at least one, two years of crops. Well, for the moment, uh, the irregularity of the rainfall for us uh, is so, so large in general that we tend to... Um, to, it, it is difficult for us to understand what's going on climate change. Um, the more obvious uh, situation is that the rain falls more concentrated in a more uh, floody way. Okay, but it was already flushy, but it's more flushy now. There are more uh, extended heat waves. So during summer, for example, now we have 30 something, 34 or something like that, 35. Maybe it would not extend as much as the end of September, and now it does. The winter is clearly more warm. It means, for example, that species start to spawn earlier or you have more cycles and so forth. Uh, going to the south, it's much worse. So yeah. going to the extreme south, uh, it's becoming pre-desertic. Uh, really, very complicated. I would say uh, there's no solution. They have to change what they do. They have to change the activities. It's not possible to maintain... Uh, cattle or to maintain the same crops uh, as it used to be uh, close to the Mediterranean, it's impossible. It's uh, really a shift. It's uh, it start now. started now. Uh, maybe in 10, 20 years' time, they'll, they'll, they'll shift completely in terms of activities. Maybe tourism is the next major activity. I don't know. But really, they cannot grow on. They have no water to irrigate. They, they simply have no water to irrigate. So debates over who gets to use water and how are central in shaping the Sarayas landscape. Land ownership is important in this process. A quirk of Portuguese law means that whilst rivers and streams themselves are public property, the landscape around them is largely private. This means that restoration projects have to find ways to work with farmers, even when it may seem that their priorities are different as André Fonseca from the University of Lisbon explains. We are also standing in a, a very old land uh, where um, farmers here have uh, century-old traditions of uh, managing this stream and these lands. And they are very attached to their ways of, um, of managing this. I think the main challenge uh, actually is... Um, making friendships with landowners and uh, meeting the people from, from this land uh, and understanding them, listening to them and trying to create solutions with them. I think the, the main uh, work that uh, has to be done to achieve that is to um, simplify the, um, the observations that we as researchers and scientists do every day. Uh, we have to take the numbers and uh, transform them into words um, so that these people, uh, the, the persons who live here, these families can understand. The large-scale environmental changes to the Saraya catchment have only really occurred in recent decades as new agricultural technologies have allowed farming to flourish in this water-stressed landscape. This means that memories of how the river used to be are still present in older generations of local people, which presents a valuable opportunity for restoration. Well, I think most of the stories are um, about the past 
you know, um, uh, where uh, especially old people, they remember how the stream and the river uh, used to be. And they remember that they didn't had uh, as much problems as they do now. So we are trying to um, uh, imagine a reference um, a condition for this stream, which is not entirely, but based on past memories. Um, in the past, this stream and this river used to be um, highly, uh, very connected. The riparian woods were uh, very dense and they um, were uh, highly connected um, and also um, very heterogeneous due to the frequent floods. So it would create uh, heterogeneity of habitats that um, nowadays, I mean, They are, they are still here, of course, but not um, as vividly as they were once were. But this idea of bringing a lost landscape back to life can only really happen if arguments for the benefits of a healthy river ecosystem are convincingly made to farmers. So besides um, bringing back the landscape uh, that they remember, um, I think one of the main benefits is um, the... Um, stabilization of margins so that farmers don't have to constantly repair what um, the floods are destroying. I mean, in the overall uh, picture of the farming business, it may not seem that relevant, but it, it, it years pass by and things get worse and worse and worse until it starts to become relevant. So it's uh, avoiding that and acting as soon as we can to um, consolidate the margins using uh, riparian woods. As Andre suggests, stream restoration can actually benefit farmers, for example, by stabilizing soils around river channels, which would otherwise wash away during floods. But communicating such benefits is not enough on its own. There's a need for stronger policy to encourage better collaboration between farmers and restorationists, as Teresa Ferreira suggests. If we um, manage to, to uh, address the combination uh, between water management, uh, the entities of water management, the concept of water management, and uh, the concept of agricultural management, in the sense that, for example, you leave a, a, a certain width in the river so that the river itself can grow and evolve uh, in itself, and, and show the farmers this is good for them, and I think uh, they are very willing uh, to accept that. It's a compromise in any way. Um, then we can have a, a more healthy system in the future. So awareness of the benefits and the, and the beautiful system the river is, um, also uh, some um, clear rules between them. It's not good that the farmer exerts a good management of uh, riparian uh, woods and then the other, the fellow, the other farmer close by does not. So there's some, also some fairness on all these that should be implemented by the authorities. Not easy, of course. Uh, the um, agricultural policy would be a critical step on this because they are not uh, related with water management. They are basically related with uh, agricultural management. So uh, the entities uh, of agriculture would be crucial on all this. Um, uh, the system would function clearly much better if, if it was like this. Uh, so I think, uh, well, hopefully we can, uh, we can uh, I would call that upscaling, yes, yes. 
This upscaling that Teresa mentions is the idea that if new ways of doing restoration can be shown to be successful, then they can be applied to rivers and streams all over Europe. I wondered though, what was the farmer's view on this situation? Standing in the hot sun with the river on one side and crop fields on the other, I spoke to a farmer, Pedro Batista, on whose land the Merlin restoration work is being carried out. I, I love the river, so it brings me humidity, brings me shade. Okay, I, I love it. It's it's the um, it's the base of life. It's water, right? Um, but I also hate it in the winter. Okay, so we have sometimes we have some big floods that damage me, damage my 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 farmland a lot. So I need to uh, make them. Um, level again for the rice sometimes my infrastructures of uh, irrigation are destroyed um, so it's necessary to teach me or to do something so I can live better with my river so because it's needed maybe it come with a cost uh, but maybe that cost is not so big as if you think about it right so if I don't have to invest every year in, in repairs so it's not just a big cost if I lost uh, an acre of production or, or, or reduce a production uh, in some parts because of the shades, for example. Maybe it's not that cost, that a greater cost. Some younger farmers uh, may share my perspective, some more educated farmers, but not all the farmers, unfortunately, not all the farmers. And so we have some farmers here, some neighbors that not... Uh, that not were willing to part participate in the project, so um, it's a challenge, yes. But it's, it's necessary for this project to keep going and, and keep trying and keep... If we could prove that we can make changes in this small spot, maybe the other, f my neighbors, would be interested in next year to participate. You need to have balance. You need to have balance when you talk to landowners or farmers. You need to understand their needs. You have to make him understand the benefits of the changes. So sometimes a small change can bring big benefits with no importance to the, the farmer life, but with big importance to the environmental life. So, But I would like to see some luxurious river here with some trees, some shades, big shades, and to come here and feel good and smell the air and listen to the birds and listen to the water, that's what I would like to leave to my children. Pedro's phrase, teach me to do something so I can live better with my river, marks him out as a particularly progressive farmer in the catchment. But his reflections are telling. They suggest a deep affinity for the river and its role in the local community. They also tell us that the river can be a destructive force through winter floods and that perhaps this is a key opportunity for restorationists to show how nature-based solutions, like planting trees along riverbanks, can help benefit both nature and farmers. And finally, Pedro's reflections again highlight the theme of understanding the needs and perceptions of farmers and how this can differ from farm to farm along a catchment. I wanted to know about how all this related to the big EU policies that define how this landscape is used, and for whom. 
I spoke to Leonor Sanch from the University of Lisbon about the complex set of environmental, water and agricultural policies that set rules on how this landscape is managed. Because it's very hard to understand where one regulation starts and the other one stops. And it's a lot of intertwining and you have the common agricultural policy, you have the new Green Deal, you have the natural directives habitat and it's all tangled up. And for people that are not from the policy or international affairs, uh, it's it's kind of hard to, to understand how it all intertwines and how it can be applied uh, every day. Europe is so, so different. You cannot compare... Portugal restoration needs to Denmark restoration needs or Italy restoration needs. It's completely different. So it makes sense that they are not very specific. But you, there can also be the mistake of not being specific enough and then people don't really know where to turn when coming up with the country's strategic plans. So uh, I would say that whoever makes the policies, that no one really knows who, uh, should be more in contact with the farmers and should be more on the land and talking with people because otherwise you're just way too far away to understand what's really going on. Because for farmers, it's it's really hard to be a farmer. So obviously you want to think about the future, but you have your family to feed and you need your income. So you're obviously first going to wor worry about the immediate. So someone above has to worry about the future and climate change and lack of water. So that's why the policies come in. So you don't have to worry about putting your own money that you need as a farmer for things that are common good, because obviously this reflects on carbon sequestration and reflects on climate change. So it's for everybody, not just the landowner. Leonor's reflection on finding points of common good is vital. A key theme underpinning nature-based solutions is that they aren't only good for the environment, but they can make economic activities like farming more financially sustainable and even profitable. Here's Joao Oliveira from the Mushmore Collective, a non-profit group that works in the region, to explain... Those, those are the, 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 the biggest challenges, is to uh, educate uh, the agriculture that it can profit, profit really on money, by working with nature and not against nature. That working against nature is just spending their money, and working with nature is bringing them savings and also profits. Okay, So that is the biggest challenge, because the old uh, 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 mindset was nature is our enemy, we must fight nature, we must do, uh, domesticize nature, we must rule nature so it does not rule us. That was the, the old thinking. The new thinking is now that we, if we work with nature, we will uh, earn more. It's getting close to the end of our time on the Soraya River, and I'm joined by Lawrence Carvalho from the Norwegian Institute for Water Research on the winding walk back through the crop fields across the flat expanse of the floodplain. I wanted to find out about how restoration on the Soraya fits in with ambitious plans to restore rivers, streams and wetlands all across Europe through the Merlin project. So what's very different about Merlin is that we aren't just measuring the impact of our restoration measures on water quality or biodiversity. 
but we're taking a much broader approach to think about the impacts on society, on the economy, and on particular sectors, such as the agricultural sector. And that's particularly important here in the Soraya and many of our small basins, they're agricultural landscapes. So we're really trying to understand how some of these sectors can, uh, how they're impacted by restoration measures, but potentially how they can also benefit. So um, here in the Soraya, for example, um, they're very much looking at how we uh, stabilize riverbanks um, using potentially uh, cropping methods that uh, using sort of grassland species that uh, livestock can, can graze. But it's, it's also about uh, using nature-based solutions where you don't have to keep maintaining uh, the banks of the rivers. So where they're often removing invasive species all the time or dealing with sand washed down, eroded into the rivers, it's can we create solutions where that long-term, that continuous maintenance isn't required so they can really benefit. And, and another really important aspect of here and in two our, at least two of our other case studies is putting sort of flowering plant buffer strips along rivers to really enhance pollination services. And again, that can be, have a real boost for agricultural productivity. Part of Lawrence's work in Merlin is to figure out how restoration activities like this can be measured. Designing and monitoring indicators of success is vital in making the case for similar restoration projects to be carried out all across the continent. You know, we're looking at pollinator diversity and abundance in this case study. We're looking at the structure of the riparian and whether it holds a, it can maintain that um, stability of the shore of the rivers at river edge. But then we are also looking at um, things like the amount of jobs created by the restoration measures themselves or by the long-term services that healthy rivers can provide. And that's, for example, here, tourism and recreation around the rivers. Um, And it could be even associated with that, you know, cafes, hotels and things. So those are some of the sort of economic measures we're looking at. And then we have measures, particularly indicators that are relevant to sectors. So looking at how the land use is changing on the agricultural land, how the productivity is uh, changing, and, uh, and even, you know, the amount of uh, livestock that are able to be maintained on the land. Yeah, and that's a fundamental importance to Merlin because we're all about changing, transforming the way uh, our landscapes are managed so we can restore biodiversity. But we need to bring society and the economy along with that, that they have to see that that is a beneficial thing for them as well. And so that's why we need to get the evidence and capture the evidence of how these restoration measures can have multiple benefits and potentially sometimes even negative impacts on aspects of sectors or or these services that rivers provide. And so what's really important about the demonstration sites is that They are providing the evidence to showcase why the multiple benefits of nature-based solutions. And so that's really critical to making the arguments to all these different sectors, to policymakers, to the public. You know, and so our results are of real interest to all those different audiences because we need to show the benefits 
to those different audiences. And that will really hopefully create the momentum to, for others to see that and to copy what's been done and replicate what's been done in Merlin. These debates are also important in understanding the slow and complex path that EU nature restoration law has taken towards agreement. Originally proposed in July 2022, the law, which is expected to be ratified in early 2024, asks European countries to restore at least 20% of their land and seas and to restore more than 25,000 kilometres of free-flowing rivers across the continent. However, the proposed law has proved controversial, particularly amongst agricultural lobbying groups and some key concessions over the responsibilities of farmers in supporting restoration have been made in the most recent text, agreed in late 2023. I asked Lawrence for his thoughts on this process and what restoration sites like the Soraya can tell us about it. I think there were some really valid arguments about the nature restoration law. It is, as an environmentalist, it all seems like a great thing to do. You know, I believe in that, that we need to restore biodiversity and nature bio- nature-based solutions also tackle the climate crisis in terms of many of them are focused on flood management or drought management. Um, and, and so that's really important. But I think what it did show us that was that we've got to properly understand um, what the impacts are on these different sectors and you know the agricultural sector in particular most of our landscape or much of it is under agricultural land so I don't think there was a really great evaluation of that in terms of the impact on those sectors and so I think that debate has made us look at that and is allowing us to reflect on that and, and create the evidence we need to understand, well, what is that imp- impact? And, and Merlin is right in the centre of that, trying to deliver the evidence of the impact on these different sectors. It's often tempting to think of river restoration as a grand or heroic act. Think of the before and after pictures of a dam being blown up or a stream freed from the constraints of concrete channels. But what time spent in the Soraya catchment has taught me is that restoration is perhaps more often pragmatic and slow, carried out in these highly pressurised landscapes where debates over the allocation of scarce resources is increasingly intensified by the climate crisis. River restoration in landscapes like the Soraya is about finding common ground, as difficult as that may be, about working in the gaps and patches of a highly modified world to find convincing ways to speak up for the value of freshwater life. You can find out more about the Merlin Project at project-merlin.eu. You can also keep up with progress on social media and at freshwaterblog.net. The Merlin Project is funded by the European Commission's Horizon 2020 programme. This podcast was presented and produced by me, Rob St. John, and the theme music is by project coordinator Sebastian Burke's band, Scala. The background music is by Scott Buckley. Please do like, share, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>